Second Kings chapter two, verse 19. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, the location of this city is good as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. He went down, went out to the spring of water and threw in the salt and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. No more death or unfruitfulness will come from it. So the waters have been healthy until this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Thank you, Artie. Do you ever have the feeling sometimes it seems that God doesn't make sense? Let me put it to you another way. Are you well situated? The situation couldn't be better, but the world around you is not so good. And inwardly, you know one thing, you are just so miserable. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be received, applied as you intend. Cleanse my tongue, that I will be your transparent instrument to convey what needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be very, very clear, and I pray that this word will be life-changing. And that the most discouraged person in this room will leave here transformed. And may this word bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've just joined us, uh, we're looking at... Elisha. Elijah, I sometimes forget and get them mixed up and in the middle of my sermon, Louise will call out that you meant the other way around. So it's easy to forget or to confuse the two names. But what we know is that Elisha is the successor to Elijah. And a reputation has now surrounded Elisha because they were saying, the spirit of Elijah is now upon Elisha. And uh, that's exactly what happened to John the Baptist. The spirit of Elijah was on John the Baptist. We know in Luke 1.17 when Gabriel prophesied to Zechariah that your child will go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. The last part of the Bible, very end, Matthew chapter 4, uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, said that Elijah would come. And then Jesus said, you have heard that Elijah is to come. Yes, but he's come already. And he referred to John the Baptist. But now 
The spirit of Elijah was on Elisha. Now, when you get a reputation that Elijah had given to Elisha, because this mantle had fallen on him, uh, your life will never be the same again. I don't know if you're praying for any of the gifts of the Spirit, but woe unto you if you get them. Because the word gets out. I know people that uh, are known to be prophetic. Their life is not their own. Everybody just goes to them. They want a word. And if they find out you have a gift of healing, they'll come to you and ask you to pray for them. And so it turns out that the men of the city came looking for Elisha because they had heard that this anointing that had been on Elijah is now on Elisha. Well, now it's very interesting to me uh, that the prophets who had affirmed Elijah and Elisha should have known that Elijah has gone to heaven and isn't coming back. But these prophets were saying, well, let's go look for Elijah. We think we can find him. Elisha said, don't even think about it. You're not going to find him. But they went anyway, and they came back, and it turned out that Elisha was right. And so the anointing upon Elisha is now firm, and it is recognized. Well, Elijah had given this authority to Elisha, and now, unlike anybody else, they're going to treat Elisha as they had treated Elijah. Now, why is this word important, and why should you listen to me tonight? Well, there are times when God seems to make no sense. And in this story, you need to know, are found the rudiments of the gospel. I couldn't help but wish that uh, I would know for sure that there's somebody here who's not saved. Uh, when anybody would tell me in advance that they're bringing a non-Christian friend tonight, I would preach twice as well. And uh, I had hoped that somebody would say there's a non-Christian here tonight. Uh, so if I uh, mess up and it's the worst sermon you've ever heard, uh, blame it on the fact that uh, I didn't know any non-Christians would be here. Because when I know that there's just one, just, that's all I need. Uh, maybe I should ask, is there any non-Christians here? Would you please stand? And if, I don't expect you to do that, but uh, if I saw you and knew you were there, I'd be aiming at you. Because in this story are the rudiments of the gospel. Uh, but there's another thing, why this is an important word, that we should learn this lesson. Don't try to figure out what God is doing and what He is up to. What you see, observe, may make no sense to you. But then if you are a believer, and I suspect all here tonight are, uh, you're wondering now, what's happening? What is going on in your life as I speak makes no sense to you. And I want to make the case that when something doesn't make sense, it's because God is up to something. And you should just stay tuned. And before you give up and, and say, God doesn't care, just wait. Because He is involved in your life. 
Now, what we look at here, as Colin just read to you, a situation ruined, or the translation he used, location. Uh, what we know is that this town is well situated. It's a, it's a reference to Jericho. And the men of the city say this to Elisha. You know, real estate people would say location, location, location. That is the most important thing when it comes to having property. Uh, this week, uh, Louise and I were down in Bournemouth. And a friend of ours drove us to Sandbanks. You ever heard of Sandbanks? I'd never heard of it. And he assured me that it's the wealthiest spot in Britain. Well, he showed us the homes. We drove around. And it immediately, it took me back to my vacuum cleaner days. Do you remember, how many of you know that you're looking at the world's greatest door-to-door -door vacuum cleaner salesman? <laughs> oh, I could do it. And my vacuum cleaners were very expensive. And so I only called on wealthy homes. If I got in, it was worth it. And uh, had some success with them. And I got to know a lot of, of famous people. Uh, I sold to the founder of Pepsi-Cola. I sold to the heiress of Coca-Cola. I sold to the owner of the Empire State Building in New York. I, I met an astronaut. I could go on and on. But I learned one thing about most wealthy people. They are miserable. <laughs> they are not happy. You have no idea the problems and the heartaches. And so Jericho, it's a lovely place, said to be the oldest city in the world. And so that's where they were, but there was something wrong. And maybe you are well located. Maybe you have a good situation. Let's say you have a good mind. Let's say you have good looks. Let's say you don't. You're well connected. You have high recommendations. And let's say that you've got a great future. But there's still a problem. And in this case, great place, Jericho. But they said, the water is bad and the land is unproductive. And so how is it going to be when you're thirsty and it's bad water? Thirsty but bad water. And if the water is bad, it can have an effect on the fruit and on the vegetables. And so they were making this point. The water is bad and the land is unproductive. Uh, a month or two ago, I was in India and uh, was told, uh, not only do you not drink the water, but you don't even brush your teeth with it. You have to use your expensive bottled water to brush your teeth. And you don't want to buy any fresh vegetables because they might be growing in land that has been infiltrated by the bad water. And uh, there are conditions like that. And I, I think of, of the world generally. Uh, many, many places in the world, they just don't have good water. And now the ocean 
The, the, the oceans everywhere are becoming polluted. Plastic, uh, cans, uh, cups thrown into the water, and, and, it's in, and now it's beginning to show up all over the world, and fish eat it, and, and they can't live. The, the combination of all these things, it's happening in our time. But imagine a situation where you are thirsty, and it is bad water. Well, perhaps you are in a situation, great location, good situation. Let's say you've got a good job. You've got income. And you've got everything in the world that most people would want. But the truth is, something's not right. And you can't figure it out. And you have to say, if you're honest, you're miserable. And what might be the problem? You may go see a psychiatrist or your doctor or your solicitor, and you're looking for the answer. And what if I were to tell you your real problem? Would you be open, open, in case I could really put my finger on your problem? Would you be open to that? The answer is the problem of sin. S-I-N, sin. And here's the thing. The problem with the whole world, sin, that's the last thing we want to talk about. The last thing where we want to examine. Isn't it amazing how people don't want their problem solved? They want their problem understood. But if you give them the real solution, they will reject it. They'll take anything but having to deal with the fact that you are a sinner. This is what the Bible does. It gives the explanation why your situation is not so good after all. And so we're talking about a situation ruined. And there's an old hymn that uses the phrase, ruined by the fall. I got Michelle to photocopy an old hymn. And it's an old hymn that uses that phrase, ruined by the fall. Let's see if I can just sing a line of it. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and ruined by the fall. How many hymns today refer to the fall of Humankind in the Garden of Eden. You see, we don't want to know about it. We don't want to believe it. But it could be that the time will come. God will send a wake-up call in such a manner that people will start listening. If you tarry till you're better... You will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call. Well, you see, you were a part of the fall in the Garden of Eden. You say, well, that couldn't be. I wasn't there. And when we hear about Adam... 
being the cause, you just say, well, but that's Adam. I wouldn't have done that. And you say, don't blame me for what Adam did. The problem is, you were in Adam. You are responsible. And if you don't believe that, let me ask you this. How have you done with your life? When you look at what happened to Adam and Eve and how it all happened, are you any different? Are you different in any way? You see, you're a proof that you are like Adam. You're his offspring. You say, but I wasn't there. Well, the truth is, you do what Adam and Eve did, and you're their offspring. As David put it, I was born in sin, shapen by iniquity. You see, here is the way it happened. The serpent who came to Eve said, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? I don't know if you've ever looked at that, how the devil tried to twist what God actually said. But here's the point. The first thing that the devil did with Eve in the Garden of Eden is to make God look ridiculous. And this is a conspiracy. And this is the very thing people want to hear. They love it. They love it. If God can look bad, ridiculous, we're looking for a way that we don't have to believe Him. We look for that which will enable us to blame Him. And so anything that can be done to make the God of the Bible look ridiculous, people are ready for it. They want to hear it. You know, back in the 60s, the Beatles said, we're more famous than Jesus. And they were so right. And it's been my aspiration in the last year or two, with the breath that I have, I want to make God famous. I want, when I pray the Lord's Prayer, and as you've heard me say, Louise and I pray it every day. When we pray, your kingdom come, and when we pray, hallowed be your name, it's a prayer that God's name will be hallowed all over the world. And we need to pray that God will be seen as he is. The devil wants to distort him. Has God said, you really should not eat from every tree in the garden? That isn't what God said. But the way he put it to Eve, it makes him look ridiculous. And I can tell you now, the God of the Bible, he's presented by Scripture in a way that the natural man will absolutely despise him because as Jonathan Edwards put it, man is God's natural enemy. Or you could put it the other way around. God is man's natural enemy. Man is God's natural enemy because by nature we hate the God of the Bible. Jonathan Edwards had what would have been a wonderful son-in-law his name was David Brainerd. Had David Brainerd live, lived, uh, he would have married Jonathan Edwards' daughter. He was a, a missionary to the American Indians and became a legend. When he died, Jonathan Edwards uh, 
got all of his diary and journals together and about 15 years later published The Life and Diary of David Brainerd. And uh, that little book is said by many to have caused more people to want to go to the mission field than any body of literature in church history. Jonathan Edwards, when he read it, uh, sorry, when John, uh, John Wesley read it, he said, let all our people read the life and diary of David Brainerd. But what you may not know about David Brainerd is that he had a quarrel with God. He did not like the God of the Bible. He hated him. He learned four things about God. And the more he read and the more he learned, the more he hated God. The first is that God demands perfect righteousness. And Brainerd knew that he didn't have it. It meant he needed a substitute. And it made him angry with God. The second thing, Brainerd learned that God demanded perfect faith. And Brainerd knew that he didn't have it. It meant God had to give it to him. And it made him angry with God. And what made him angrier is when he saw that God could give faith or withhold it. And then the fourth thing Brainerd learned about God is that God could save him or damn him and be just either way. Now, I don't know how this kind of language makes you feel. You see, this is the God of the Bible, and maybe you, even as I speak, inside you think, ooh, I don't want a God like that. And I don't mean to be unfair, but if you react in that negative manner, when you hear about the God of the Bible, it suggests that you haven't been converted after all. You see, you can be converted to a God that you like. The philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach, German philosopher, his teaching was the gateway to Marxism. Feuerbach taught that man has projected a God, that God is man's projection upon the backdrop of the universe. It's not that there really is a God, but man wants to believe. We want to believe that there's a heaven, that God's going to take care of us one day. Uh, we want to believe that, so we project that that's the case. According to Feuerbach, there's no such thing. It's only in your imagination. But when you get to look at the God of the Bible using Feuerbach's reasoning, nobody ever would come up with a God like this. Who could have imagined a God that demands perfect righteousness and it means that you have to have a substitute or you'll be lost. He can give faith or withhold it and be just either way. And so the God holds your destiny in his hands, can save you or damn you and be just either way. But you see, what happens is when you see the God of the Bible, you'll need to be converted. You say, I can't like a God like that. David Brainerd hated him. He hated him. But one day, 
God saved him. And Brainerd lived to preach the same truths that he once hated. All right. Situation ruined. But then comes a strange request. They go to Elisha and say, we need help. We need help because the town, though it's well situated, located beautifully, the water is bad and the land is unproductive. And so they're expecting something and lo and behold, Elisha says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. You might think, well, that's the most stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. Bring a new bowl and put salt in it. How do you make sense out of that? What a strange request. You see, that defies a natural explanation. How is a new bowl and salt going to solve the problem? Well, uh, why would he say, bring me a new bowl? Couldn't they find an old bowl that would do just as well? Well, the answer is that God was going to do something new and different. And you see, God loves to do what is unprecedented. God loves to do something that you would never have thought of. Many people react negatively to anything that's done if it hasn't been done before. Perhaps you know that the 11th chapter of Hebrews includes those men and women of faith. They did unusual things by their faith. Do you know one thing they all had in common? Not a single person in Hebrews chapter 11 got to repeat what had been done before. For example, Enoch walked with God. God took him. He was gone. Went to heaven. Noah grows up hearing about Enoch. He says, I want to be like Enoch. I'm going to walk with God. He thinks that he's going to be taken up. But no, God says to Noah, build an ark. Abraham comes along. He walks with God. He thinks he might have to build an ark. But he goes out not knowing where he's going. And so with you, he may be asking that of you for which there's no natural explanation, no precedent. So God loves to do what is unprecedented. But then he says, put salt in it. Well, that, that was all right. They, plenty of salt around because Jericho is just, just a couple of miles from the Dead Sea, which is the salt sea. A lot of salt. So there's the new and then that which they were familiar with. You could say like the old and the new. Uh, old salt, something they were familiar with. The new, a bowl, surely they could get an old bowl, but God says, I want a new bowl. You know, this reminds me of the teaching of Jesus. Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven uh, is this way. It's like the owner of a house who brings out the, of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. The new and the old are both needed. You need fresh truth, fresh insight, but never forget the old truths. Uh, we never outgrow the need to hear 
the gospel. Uh, I say it to, to worship groups in my book, Holy Fire. I've pleaded uh, all over the world for worship groups to sing the old as well as the new. Why? Because I'm more familiar with it? Because I'm an old fogey? No, it's because the old hymns, just like the one I quoted, what's being written today so often, so often, is not good stuff at all. I was recently in a charismatic church and the words were so shallow and so frivolous and I died in a thousand deaths in my heart. As I, I, I thought, what kind of talk is this? But the people just singing along, I would urge, you need the new and the old. And you see, I can put it another way. Uh, I'm old. Collins new. <laughs> you need RT, you need Colin. And so here we have it together. Elisha comes along and says, bring me a new bowl and then put salt in it. See, this is a strange request. But, you know, Jesus had a strange manner of healing. Uh, sometimes he would just touch the person. Uh, sometimes he would heal by remote control. And then there was one occasion where he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes, and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. It doesn't make sense. But you see, this is the thing. God is in the business of requiring things that don't make sense. Uh, whatever can a new bowl and salt do to heal the water? You know, the men of the city might have said, who does Elisha think he is? Uh, we will not be treated like that. We will not be treated as though we are stupid. But I can tell you this, if a man of God, when he's a reliable prophet, puts a request that makes no sense, we should obey. And when we are desperate, we will obey. It could be that you here, uh, at the moment, you hear about the God of the Bible, you say, I don't want that, I don't want that. But in time, in time, you'll say, I need that. And the first time you hear it, you react. The second time you react. But eventually, God brings you to a place that you are so miserable, so unhappy, that you're ready to do whatever he says. And if the prophet says, get a new bowl and some salt, you think, well, that's stupid. But just do it. It may make no sense to you at the time. And so your task is to look to the substitute God provides. You see, David Brainerd says he didn't like the God of the Bible because he demands perfect righteousness. That meant he needed a substitute. In order for you to get to heaven, you've got to have a substitute. Someone that takes your place. And that can be very humbling. You say, if I can take my own place, thank you very much. No, you're not able to do that because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
Has anybody ever told you that you are a sinner? And do you realize how serious that is? You can say, well, none of us is perfect. But you need to know how much God hates sin. If I had the power or the anointing or the vocabulary to make you see how much God hates sin, you would in that moment say, I'm ready. I'll do anything you say. I'll do anything you say. Because God hates sin so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. And so if salt in a new bowl poured into this stream of mud makes no sense to you, how do you make sense that the Bible says that the blood of Jesus will wash away all your sins? That doesn't make sense. But God says, look to the cross. In fact, Charles Spurgeon used to say, your task is to go to Jesus. In fact, he says, run to the cross. Run! Then if you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. And if you can't crawl, look. Because all you have to do is just look. There's life in a look. There's life in a look. And so it is not great faith that saves. It is faith in a great Savior. And so as that old hymn continued to, to go on, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Anybody feel your need of him? This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. Well, isn't it wonderful to know? All the fitness he requires to feel your need of him. You feel your need of him. Are you prepared just to look to the cross? You don't have the strength to run. You're too broken even to crawl. But if just look, just look, just look. Life in a look. And see that God has provided the substitute for you. And the fact that you look to him means he's given you the faith. He could give faith or withhold it. But if you can look and rejoice that Jesus has died for you, that's faith. It means God gave you that faith. Well, so we have here a supernatural restoration. How can this happen? How can emptying a bowl of salt into bad water make it sweet? What is the explanation? Well, it's a mysterious explanation. Don't try to figure it out. It's like when Moses saw the burning bush. He kept looking at the burning bush and the, the bush didn't consume. And Moses said, I'm going to see what's going on here. And he came up and God said, stop. Don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. 
You're on holy ground. You try to figure it out, you never will. How the blood of Jesus Christ will wash away all your sin. Try to figure it out. Don't try to figure it out. Just look to the cross and say, God, I'm desperate. I'll do whatever you say. I thank you for the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. Well, here's what happened. Elisha gave a pronouncement. And here's what he said. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. By pouring the salt, the water became sweet. Sweet. Don't you love the taste of water when you're thirsty? Water's not so good until you are thirsty. I think I'll have a drink. <laughs> sweet water. And by the way, Elisha said that this water will make it so that never again, these are his words, never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. I've been to that very spring. You can go to Jericho today, and it's called Elisha's Spring. And I have got down on my knees and took my hands and drank the water. It's cool. We don't like to drink lukewarm water. It's cool and it is sweet. And Jesus said, if anyone drinks the water that I give him, he'll never thirst. And right at the end of the Bible, in the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus said, whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life. But you see, it's only when you're thirsty. And if you're in a situation that's good, but you're still unhappy, you've got everything. You've got connections. You've got income. That something is wrong, and you're totally miserable. And this is the kindness of God to bring you to the place, instead of trying to figure out everything, just say, if God says it, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to believe it. Nothing else has worked. And so Elijah says, this is what the Lord says. If you can find any word where you can hear the word of the Lord, most wonderful thing that can ever happen to you. Well, it's what the Lord says. A new beginning begins with when God steps in and when he speaks. And I can just ask, are you looking everywhere under the sun except for one thing, God's opinion? Well, see, at bottom here, there's no reason that salt poured into dirty water is going to make it clear and sweet. Doesn't make sense. But God healed the water. God healed the water. Maybe you need healing and no one has been able to encourage you. Maybe there's someone here, the doctors have given up and they say, there's nothing more we can do. Whatever the situation, if the Lord steps in and if you hear a word from God, it's the best thing that can happen. It is what God did. Wasn't what Elisha did. He was only in the instrument. It's what God did. 
And God can heal anybody in this place, whatever your problem may be. So I ask, had you been in Jerusalem on Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, and you march into the city and you say, what's God doing in Jerusalem? Oh, the reply would come, it's Passover. It's Passover. If we can wait for that thing on the cross outside the city to die, if you had been at the cross and if you had watched Jesus, there's an old spiritual. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? You could have been there and would not have discerned a thing. You would not have known that God was at the bottom of it all. You would not have known that this is the way God wanted to save people, by sending his son into the world to die on a cross. And so we are told that after Elisha gave this strange request, you know what it says? He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And so instead of saying, do you think we're stupid? They brought it to him. They did the easy thing. God did the big thing. God did the healing. And what they did was just obey the prophet. And what I'm asking you to do on this night is to take this word and you know where you are. Well situated, well located, but you're a sinner. And if you were to die right now, you would be eternally lost. If I've been talking to someone like that, I have no idea if there's anyone in this room who needs this word. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer right now. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. In Jesus' name, amen.